Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, Debbie Evans and I uh, are joined today by Professor Norman Fenton. Now, um, uh, Professor Fenton is that rarest of breed, which is someone speaking out uh, in uh, in an accurate, uh, factually based, and non-ideological um, way against the narrative from academia, against the government narrative, against the prevailing uh, way the wind is blowing. This used to be common um, in academia. It used to be expected. It used to be the norm. It is no longer. We find ourselves um, having lost our institutions in very large part um, to um, a very ideologically driven, uh, very narrow and very censorious uh, viewpoint. Uh, this viewpoint, you call it neo-Marxism, you call it um, critical theory, you can call it woke ideology. There are many names for it, postmodernism. All of these things have have uh, shed some light on what we're dealing with. But what's happened, there's been a long march through the institutions. The institutions have fallen. And now, to tell the truth, becomes a dangerous thing for someone in academic life. Uh, and only the brave need apply. And this brings us to our guest, Professor Norman Fenton. Uh, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on again. If we can start with uh, Professor Fenton versus The Lancet. Uh, what's been happening here? Okay, so this is just one of several instances that I've had in censorship of anything that we've tried to get published on the COVID data and particularly anything on the safety and effectiveness of vaccines. So this is just one example of the censorship I've, I've, I've encountered. So basically in, in May, early May 2021, The Lancet published a, a, what we've regarded was a blatantly flawed study into the effectiveness of the Pfizer COVID vaccine. But it was an important study because it was the first one, I believe, that was a total whole population study. It was a whole, pop whole population of Israel. It was an observational study that was claiming 95% effectiveness for the vaccine. And that was an important figure because it, it just so happens to be the same effectiveness figure, 95%, which which uh, Pfizer claimed for the original um, clinical trials. So people thought, ah, the clinical trials, that was on a special, you know, they're, they're mainly a younger population. But here we've got the vaccine rolled out to something like 80%, 85% of the Israel population. And now we can see that it's 95% effective on a, a population level. So this was really, a really, and this was trumpeted all around the, the world. Well, there were so many flaws, blatant flaws in this study. I mean, there, there are flaws in the study which are actually the same flaws in all of the observational studies that you see on vaccine effectiveness and safety. So we picked out a, a couple of these flaws. I mean, for example, um, the one of the obvious ones is that they count anybody who gets COVID or test PCR positive within two weeks of their initial jab is counted as unvaccinated. So that's counted as a, an unvaccinated uh, uh, COVID infection, which is, of course, ridiculous. But you've got all that. But there are other systemic flaws, which we pointed out. We submitted a rapid response, 250-word letter, explaining why the study was flawed. That was on the 17th of May, 2021. We got a kind of an initial acknowledgement saying that the they would ask the authors of the study for a response. 
We didn't hear anything at all for 20 months. Then out of the blue on the 8th of January, 2023, we get an email from the Lancet senior editor, Josephine Gibson, apologizing for never having got back to us about our letter, but saying that the lead author of the study, which is a, a woman called Dr. Sharon Alroy uh, Price, had been asked to respond to our letter, but because she didn't provide any formal response, they decided not to publish our letter. It's a curious thing. So we tweeted that Lancet response, and within 24 hours, it got over a million impressions. And I, we also published a Substack, a Substack article highlighting the fact that we were now aware of addition, because we actually did some checks, and we did some checks on this lead author, Sharon Alroy Price. And we found some very interesting things that, that she basically had a very, to say she had a close relationship with Pfizer is an understatement. But, um, and that, of course, was never declared. They did declare there were, there were 15 authors of the paper, eight of whom declared that they did indeed hold stocks and shares in Pfizer, but she didn't have any conflict of interest um, stated. And yet it turns out she was actually the Israel Ministry of Health lead person, lead liaison person on the government's relationship with Pfizer. So anyway, because this all went kind of like viral on, <laughs> on Twitter, the next day we got an unsolicited email from the, from the Lancet, from the same uh, Josephine Gibson, which was clearly only a result of the reputation hit they were getting from our tweet, saying, thank you for bringing your letter back to our attention. We're looking into the next step, so we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And it turns out they, we then, um, uh, you know, we, I then made her aware of the additional concerns we had about the, uh, the paper because of the conflict of interest, failure to state that. And on the 11th of January, the next day, we got an email back saying we are now inviting you. We are now they we are now inviting you to publish the original letter or an update to it. And fantastic, you know they've, they're actually actually agreed to this. So we sent our letter with an update, and lo and behold, almost immediately we got a response saying they decided not to publish the letter. I mean it's quite astonishing. So. So that was the that wasn't the end of it, of course. So what I did was I then decided to um, to submit a freedom of access request to the uh, to Elsevier, who actually are the yeah a sub sorry a subject access information request to Elsevier because they're the publishers of the Lancet, asking for all internal correspondence between the editors and reviewers relating to the submission and ultimate rejection of our letter. And actually, you know, I was expecting that I wasn't actually expecting a response at all, but they actually sent back um, a response about three or four weeks later. And it's uh, there was a cover letter. But the they actually had a nine-page document with all of these emails, and most of it was redacted. But it was what was remarkable that even though most of the details redacted, um, there was enough information in what was unredacted to see that the, re the um, refusal to publish our letter had nothing to do with the quality and accuracy of our complaints against the, against the article, but simply because who I was. You know, they were, do they were trying to dig the dirt on me, basically. And they were sort of saying, oh, it doesn't, you know, so they were sort of reluctantly accepting that actually I do seem to have a valid professorship, but, oh, look, this guy has been pumping out anti-vax, has been retweeting 
uh, tweets from anti-vaxxers and stuff like that. So this is all this is all there, and they were re- referring to me as a problem. That they were saying they'd they got some helpful background information on Fenton, which we suspect you know could have been um, you know uh, furnished by the seventy seventh brigade or, or whatever. We don't know, but someone provided a dossier, and there's plenty of people out there who have, of course, been trying to dig the dirt. And so it turns out that they were only you know, it was, they were sending this, they, they were clearly sending just the initial um, letter invited us to re, you know, resend the, the uh, to, to where they said they would actually publish it. It was just a holding, it was clearly just a holding email. They never had in, they never had any intention of publishing it. It's bizarre. That's quite a story and well done for using uh, subject access request. I, I remember the early days of freedom of information uh, Mark Steele was in a fight with, I think, the BBC, and he put in an FOI or sub, uh, it was a subject access request for all the information they held on him. And he eventually got a lot of information, including the internal discussion within the BBC on how to avoid releasing that information. You know, it was kind of the gift it kept on giving. Um, so, uh, you know, well, well played. And... <clears throat> I, I did pick up, I think it was Debbie that sent it through, a, a song based on the sound of silence, all about silencing science. Um, and it was mostly focused on COVID and related matters, but it was a, a general commentary on um, the, the search for truth is being closed down. Uh, and the best line, because it was based on the Simon and Garfunkel song, and the best line was the words of the prophets are written in the Substack mail and Twitter jail, and I thought that was just genius. And and it, it does show that it's in these less regulated means of communication lie the, the, the last areas where the truth has a chance to actually be heard. Um, the, the fact that your Twitter record has been used to assess whether you're suitable for publication in a journal like The Lancet and not your publication record <laughs> in learned journals is is quite bizarre. Um, I've got some follow-on questions, but before I do, can I just hand over to Debbie and and and, and welcome her onto the uh, the discussion into the discussion and, and just ask Debbie, what are your initial thoughts on this? My initial thoughts are absolutely staggering because here we have Professor Fenton, um, a, a world expert who's all of a sudden now a a nobody because of his stance of telling the truth. And this brings me back to experts. And we've been talking about experts on the the column for a while. And and it's down to public trust, because who constitutes what an expert is? If I choose to listen to Professor Norman Fenton, which I do as an expert, then how, how are we meant to ask the rest of the public to trust Professor Fenton as well if other people are discrediting him. So it all comes down really, I think, to public trust. But again, you know, the bravery of Professor Fenton in standing up is, I think my biggest question is who are these people? Who are these other academics um, that that, that are, are putting out this narrative so that we're not to believe the likes of Professor Fenton. And I think that's my big question to Professor Fenton is who are these other people in academics in, or in the academic world that are being allowed to pump out this completely false narrative? 
Well, they're the what I regard as the sort of the captured a- a- academics. They're the ones who are, in this case, funded by the sort of big pharma, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But actually, increasingly, anybody who even gets funded by now by the UK sort of Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, our UK government funding, you've effectively got to declare a commitment to the kind of like the woke ideology. You have to... Um, you know, even in, every time you prepare a grant now, you've got to you know, make a statement about sort of what you're going to do about equality and diversity and all that kind of stuff. So, but even for a very, very long time, this, uh, what I guess can only be described as a kind of um, sort of a Marxist ideology is very common amongst uh, uh, in academia. And I think in particular over the COVID issue, starting with the lockdowns that was something that was very much you know, was incredibly welcomed by most academics and those who had especially those who of course had the ear of government those are on sage and then who this sort of self-promoting people on isage these are all people who have a kind of like a world view uh, which is driven towards that kind of that desire for you know sort of global governance and uh, and uh, authoritarian control. So that those are your kind of captured academics, and those are the ones. I've got no idea why. I mean, we've, got a cons- we've had a conservative government for a long time, and yet they were being advised throughout the whole COVID crisis. Look at the names. Look at the people. You know, you've got you know people like Susan Mickey, of course, who was the person mainly behind the sort of the Project Fear and the whole spy, uh, you know, that Sage spy stuff. Who. Um, openly communist, but there are plenty of others. Most of the others are sympathetic to, to that way of thinking as well. These are the people who, unfortunately, are the ones who are only ones who seem to be accepted as experts and able to speak both to the government and on in, to the BBC and stuff like that. Because you were effectively employed by the BBC, weren't you, for six months? So you know how the BBC work. But how do we get the public trust back? Professor Fenton, you know, how, because the public are believing these Marxists, um, as, as you've, as you've called them, how do we get public trust back? And I, I know I'll throw back to David in a minute as well, because I know that David will definitely want to comment on what you've just said, but how do we get public trust back? It's very difficult because, you know, we, let's, let's call us, you know, actually they, they might call us the sort of the COVID dissidents, that, that dissident, uh, voice is not allowed to be heard. I mean, going back to, to, to sort of my censorship, I mean, as you said, I had pre-COVID, I mean, I, I published uh, six books. And I've got well over 300 peer-reviewed uh, papers. You know, my, um, you know, I was <laughs> very well respected for my work in, um, uh, in, in decision analysis and risk assessment. And yet, as soon as I started um, writing and publishing work on the initial sort of COVID data, initially with the the problems with the sort of the PCR, the actual the PCR testing and stuff like that. Journal papers, first of all, we were submitting them to the, the regular journals. That uh, first of all, they were they were quickly rejected with minimal review. Then, next step was that, that they were rejected automatically without review. The third step is that the preprint servers, i.e., where anybody can put a paper, it doesn't get reviewed. That's the whole point of a preprint server. They were automatically rejecting our papers. And then the new thing, which I actually wrote a, a Substack article about uh, yesterday or the day before, before, is that they're now, they're now attempting to go after our non-COVID papers to get th- those retracted 
with completely spurious reports, in my case, of failure to t- declare a conflict of interest. So the, the ones that I'm getting loads and loads of reports about, so these are papers got nothing to do with COVID and nothing to do with anything related uh, to my membership of heart. They're, up, they're saying that I failed to declare my membership of heart and Pandates. Well, I've never been a member of Pandates, which is a curious thing. I am a member of heart, but they're expecting me to declare membership of, of heart on a paper which was about, you know, the most recent one was like uh, statistical is- issues in the conviction of um, nurses. Nothing to do, anything, <laughs> absolutely nothing. So to do with it, I mean, so where do we stop? Do I have to declare my, you know, do I have to de- declare that I'm a season ticket holder at Spurs? Do I have to declare that, do I have to declare my Prime, you know, my, my, my Amazon Prime membership? Where does it end? <laughs> well, this is a good question. Season, season ticket at Spurs. Ooh. Yeah, it, it, you make a good point. Um, <clears throat> Debbie asked an excellent question a moment ago uh, about what makes an expert right? and the whole standing of what an expert is in society because <clears throat> it's been sadly moving away from someone who's, whose knowledge of subject area is so clear, is so manifest, shines out of them, that can take the most difficult, complex ideas and explain them in a way that is simple and understandable by any reasonably well-educated layman, because such is a deep understanding of the subject matter, they can translate the seemingly complex into the apparently simple, a very difficult thing to do. And when you see that done well, you recognise, I believe, you recognise that you're in the in, in the presence of a significant intellect and someone who is speaking with a considerable degree of, of specialist knowledge. But even then, um, there's an implied uh, requirement on the listener to ask questions, to think about the information that's coming in, and an implied duty on the expert to answer these questions and do so in a similar convincing manner. All of that's been lost. We now have expert as confidence trickster. We now have expert as authority figure by diktat. We have an entire system based on the logical fallacy of argument to authority. I have the post, the degree, the qualification the job description that says, I'm all-knowing, and everyone else must comply. And of course, <laughs> we then get into the strange world of diversity, inclusion, and equity, DIE, which you've just described how you have to make statements about to get any sort of grant for anything from the government now. Now, diversity, in practice, means uniformity, because you have to have uniformity of thought. Um, inclusion in practice means exclusion because people who do not have uniformity of thought are excluded from the public discourse. And equity means basically discriminating against people so that some arbitrary equality of outcome amongst groups, however defined, is achieved. So it's a, it's 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 a, it's against kind of natural justice and fairness and things like this. So these are extremely deceptive terms. Why are they being accepted? Why is academia um, rolled over to 
and it is cultural Marxism, these cultural Marxist ideas. Why has the government done so? Why has everybody surrendered intellectually to this and not asked the questions about why? Because we managed to, we managed to have very significant scientific progress and discovery over a couple of hundred years without diversity, inclusion and equity statements. Why are they suddenly required? I, 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 find, I find these are, are, are troubling questions about the nature of academia. And I, I think that's what I'd like to ask uh, Norman to sort of explore a little bit more now. You, you're in this environment, you're in this world, you're seeing these strange, heavily redacted responses from organisations like The Lancet, for goodness sake. Um, what do you think is happening? What do you think is driving this agenda? I'm actually out of it now because I formally retired at the end of December of 2022. I'm now just a, a, an emeritus professor at Queen Mary. And to be, <laughs> to be frank, I'm kind of like quite glad to be out of it. It was very, very, I mean, the thing is, the only reason why I was able to speak out, because it would have been a very, it would have been very difficult. And people say, well, you're brave to speak out. But I was, you know, when, even when the whole thing started, I realised I was not that, you know, I have had a career. I wasn't that far away from retirement. Um, and in the end, of course, I, you know, decided just to, get, you know, just I would, I would retire. There are other personal reasons as well, but I decided I would retire because it, it really was, that whole atmosphere of, as you say, it's cultural Marxism was, was getting to me. And everything about it, it's been going on for a very long time. That, that's the point. This is, this is not new. This is not new uh, with COVID. You've got the, just look at how you're know, far back, the whole kind of like the, the climate change scare and the, Again, the similar manipulation, misrepresentation of mathematical models, misrepresentation of data, and the censoring of anybody, if you like, dissenting against that narrative. That's been going on for a, a very long time. But it, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't just stop there. It's in all aspects of academia. You have that kind of like cultural Marxism dominating what can be done. So anybody who does want to do something, I mean, science progressed, you know, the big scientific um, uh, progressions came about through came about through dissenting voices, people who didn't accept the existing, you know, the status quo, what everybody else believed, right? But now that's, that, that you, you become sort of cast out, you're, you know, you become somebody, uh, you know, as, as I become, and as, as a few others who have spoken out on these issues, you, you, you become a, a disgraced academic. I mean, you know, you get sort of effectively government spokesmen on, in publicly on uh, Twitter, you know, saying, th saying that, that, that I'm a, a rabid misinformation, you know, a misinformation spreader. I mean, that's the extent of it. So anybody who is not close to retirement, who wants to speak out, will be in danger. I mean, you know, there were people, the point is, many people in campaigns whipped up by other academics you know, we're trying to get me out of Queen Mary. We're writing to Queen Mary and say, this guy's a disgrace. You know, why is he still a professor at Queen Mary? You know, you get these campaigns. That's, that will happen. It's happened to, you know, the small number of colleagues of mine who have also spoken out. It's, it, this, is the, this is the atmosphere. It's the environment. Because as I said, I was, as I was saying before to, uh, to Debbie, it's this, um, a lot of academics are kind of like happy with that, this sort of new uh, globalist authoritarian control uh, viewpoint. It, it, it's 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 it it it's basically what their worldview is. 
Do you see any significant pushback? Is the resistance to this still on the fringes? Uh, is it is it the indiv is it the individual human beings who will who will not buckle to this fighting, shall we say, perhaps lonely battles in different institutions up and down the country, or is there more of a realization that we have a problem here, and is there any sign of university authorities, university management realizing, yeah, this attack we've been running on freedom of speech, freedom of thought. This is a bit anti the whole university idea. Maybe we've made a mistake. Is there any sign of that? No, no, there isn't. And you're quite right that you'd have thought that the universities, we know that, you know, the problems with the mainstream media and, you know, the other sort of uh, organisations who are sort of bought into this sort of woke narrative, and the, in particular the narrative of, of the need to censor, right? You'd have thought that the universities would be the one institution would have, which would have resisted that. But they've been, what's really concerned me, they, they've been at the forefront. There's, you can't believe how much in, enormous investment there is now in, in the area of kind of like computer science, which is sort of an area where I was in, let's say, for a long time, which is actually dedicated to basically censorship, censoring it. They call it using AI to detect misinformation or hate speech. It's, it's dressed up as that, enormous funding for this. But essentially... It's a mass censorship campaign, and this is big, big money. A lot of computer science is devoted to exactly that at the moment, a lot of, and a lot of uh, government funding. All the AI funding, is, most of it is going into that area, which is completely bizarre. So the universities, which should have been the sort of the last bastions of free speech and those kind of like protesting against censorship, are the ones now who are leading the censorship campaign with novel techniques of new, you know, new ways to censor it, trying to find misinformation why it isn't there, trying to find microaggressions when there's, you know, when there's nothing there. This is this is a drive by academics. And Debbie, you've you've got some specific questions. We've gone from universities and the the nature of their uh, failure to live up to the basic principles on which we were found. We go from this to another organisation which has failed to live up to the basic principles on which it was found at MHRA. Um, the, the, you've got some specific questions, I think, for Norman regarding uh, some recent statements by June Rain. Is that right? I have, yes. And, and you know, it's this is where it's always so valuable to have people like Professor Norman Fenton on speed dial, because when you discover some of the videos that June Rain puts out, sometimes I, I don't think she believes that anybody's going to watch them. So, Viewers and listeners may remember the latest video by June Rain, which was uh, her lecturing at the Nicola Wheatley Memorial Lecture. Um, and she came up with some very interesting statistics, some very interesting information. And she was also refer uh, referencing Professor David Spiegelhalter's data. And Professor David Spiegelhalter was a member of SAGE, and then he kind of mysteriously disappeared. Um, from Sage, but he's a colleague and um, of Professor Norman Fenton's. So I was very grateful to Professor Fenton for watching this video that June Rain has recently put out, or at least the um, organisation has put out the, in in Wales. And Professor Fenton has come up with some very interesting revelations, which I, I have to say are an exclusive for UK Column because she's referencing serious adverse reactions in Wales and Professor Fenton noticed something very significant. So I'm not going to um, 
to say any more, I'm going to just hand over to Professor Fenton. What did you see from June Rain's revelations? Well, it gave us really some incredible insights into the extent of underreporting of serious adverse events uh, of vaccines or other drugs in the yellow card system. Because we've always, I mean, at the moment, for example, for the COVID uh, vaccines, yellow card has about 2,400 deaths recorded from the COVID vaccines, right? And we've always argued that systems like yellow card and uh, VAERS in, in the USA are significantly, massively underreporting adverse reactions. I mean, some people have claimed that the that it's the only as, as few as one in a hundred uh, uh, reports uh, ever get submitted. Others have claimed it, you know, it might be as high as you know, it might only it might be up to sort of 25, 30%, but it's nobody ever, nobody has ever claimed it's anything more than 30%. So generally you get these quite low reporting rates. But what was in, specifically interesting about um, one of the slides in her presentation was the very different reporting rates across the UK. And in particular, Wales had actually a much higher reporting rate than um, Scotland. In fact, Wales had a four times higher reporting rate than Scotland. So what this would mean is that if, as we believe a conservative estimate, we believe there's very good, we believe that there's very powerful evidence that the, the reporting rate is never more than 10%. Let's suppose Wales hits that 10% target. That will mean that the Scottish reporting rate is less than, is less than 3%, 2.5%, which shows you the, the you know, it's give us, it gives us real evidence of the, you know, people, it, it shows you the, the under-reporting rate must be very, very high for, the, for there to be such significant differences. But this has given us some, some real insights. And in fact, as a result of this, I mean, we did a, uh, a recent report which was estimating the true number of vaccine deaths based on two, two variables. There's, there's, two, there's two variables. One is what is the underreporting rate? And the other one, because that, that, whatever that is, it's going to increase the true number on the number that you've observed. But the other, people say, ah, oh, well, a lot of the reports that are in there cannot causally be linked to the vaccines. Right, which is true, but actually we've done a lot of research on that and we've discovered that there is real evidence that at most 30%, at most 30%, probably at most 15%, but between 15 and 30% of the reports of serious adverse reactions are not, cannot be directly linked to the vaccine. So basically most of them are real. You know, you can, you can probably assume that 70% of these are linked to the vaccines. So on the one hand, you've got to adjust the figures down slight a bit to account for the, uh, the bogus reports, the ones which aren't generally linked to vaccines, but then you've got to increase it, take an account of the underreporting rate. Well, from what I've seen from what um, uh, June Rain presented there, I believe that the underreporting rate is, 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 you know, is worse than, than we had assumed. I'm, I'm sure it's worth, we had assumed 10%. We know it's much worse than that in Scotland. And elsewhere in the UK, in fact, Wales was 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 typically three times higher than than anywhere else. The Yellow Card Centre here in Wales is a good read from the last twenty one annual report, and so what we've what we're doing, I think, is reevaluating how the Welsh Yellow Card Centre has contributed enormously.
to detecting signals. Now, if you read the report, what you're looking for is actually the non-COVID reports, the vaccines and the therapeutics, and how the centre has maintained a finger on the pulse of the safety of medicines throughout this time. And you will be incredibly impressed, as I was, to see that increase in reporting rates despite everything happening in the pandemic. How did they, they do this? How did you do this? And I think some of the yellow card champions are here today. If you want to put your hands up, we'll want to celebrate what you've done. An amazing initiative here in Wales that has, if you like, set off other initiatives, both nationally and internationally. That local outreach embodied in colleagues who are going out and encouraging reporting. So let's hear it for the yellow card champions. And simple, simple principles, making a pledge to continue reporting, publishing papers, having campaigns on topics of interest, all happening here. And if you want to really take a bow, Yellow Card Centre Wales, you will see some of the amazing comparisons. There's Wales. I don't think I need to say too much more. <laughs> Colleagues, please accept thanks, because you are setting the standard for yellow card centres across the UK. And I think that really says it all in one slide. Interestingly, and a very useful piece of work looked at the um, Im impact after the reporting indicator was introduced. And this was back in 2014, the NRI. And when that was introduced, looking at a comparison between GP reporting and other groups of reporters, there was a real significant increase in the number of yellow cards from GPs in Wales that actually continued to increase year on year, uh, uh, even uh, as long as the NRI was in place. So no concomitant change from other reporting groups. And again, a beautiful example of how an initiative in the centre was able to uh, have a, a meaningful impact. She also, incidentally... <laughs> said something bizarre about the, uh, the number of reports because she said in that speech, she said, we celebrate the increase in yellow card reporting rates during COVID despite all that was going on, which was a curious thing because she was like, because she was in Wales, I think the point she was making is that they've done a good job in making sure that, you know, people do actually put the reports, which is a good thing. I know it's good that she's saying that, but she was actually celebrating it. But on the other hand, she was talking about the fact that they were using AI to monitor the, the COVID vaccine report submitted to, to Yellow Card. And what she said was that they'd modelled and expected 100,000 reports, but very quickly they got in, and she didn't say how quickly, but um, very quickly she said they received 500,000. She said, so the AI was really important, so basically you know, they were using, actually, they didn't really use much AI. I think they were just, you know, doing some sort of standard text, um, you know, some, some, some simple sort of text analysis. It was, there wasn't much AI there. But the point is, she was admitting how massively, massively they underestimated the scale of the reports that were, were going to come in. I mean, they knew, they, were, they, they, they expected a lot more than for any other vaccines. You know, she admitted to that. But they didn't realise... How many more? 
interesting too, she's also admitted that they don't have, the MHRA don't have enough scientists. I mean, she, and as, as you've rightly said, you know, she's almost proud of it, but she says, you know, we don't have enough scientists to look at each individual yellow card. There are so many of them. It's, it's simply, it's staggering to listen to and, and listening also to Cheryl, um, Cheryl Granger, one of our UK column viewers, and we've previously interviewed Cheryl. She got onto the MHRA board meeting and asked about uh, the doses and the, the fact that the serious adverse reactions we were looking at were one in, I think it was 426 doses. And she literally, Stephen Lightfoot, the chair of the board, said that that this was not the opportunity. We shouldn't use this board meeting where everybody is around, including the chief safety officer. We mustn't use this opportunity to discuss this dosing serious adverse reactions. So I think my question too, and and also the, the whole thing about AI, you know, we know that the MHRA have been saying they've been using AI, but then on the other hand, they say they're not using AI, so they don't seem to quite know what they're doing, which we know about. But I guess my big question to you is, if we're looking at Wales, which we know Wales have a, a yellow card reporting centre, a specific one, um, but if, they're, if their reporting rate is four times higher, um, and if we look at the round, at a guesstimate, what would you say percentage of serious adverse reactions we are looking at in reality, do you think? I believe, as I said there, that we now, I'm convinced less than 10% of those in the UK are being reported to yellow card. I mean, we've got, we, we've got, you know, we've got lots of, well, there's, there's anecdotal evidence of this. I mean, I put in, uh, you know, all the kinds of reasons why we believe there's, uh, there's underreporting. Um, but, you know, this is saying, of course, I have personal um, experience with it. It's not just that um, uh, the, the unreporting, it's the fact that, that going back to the, the sort of the follow up, there's no follow up at all. I mean, I submitted um, uh, a very, very serious adverse event report, and I never even got, there's, no, there's never been an acknowledgement, let alone any, any follow up. And from my understanding, there's, there's, never, there's never any follow up on, on this stuff. So there's no real incentive. For, for people to report, there's many disincentives. In many cases, um, there's nobody. When there is a, in particular, when there's a death, there's actually nobody who, who's prepared to take responsibility to submit uh, a serious adverse event. I mean, I gave, you know, I, I publicly, I went public on some of my personal experiences on, on this. I mean, it, it, the very, very when the vaccination program was, was was rolled out at the end of December, beginning of January. Um, you know, a friend's a father, a friend of mine who was who was elderly but in very in perfectly good health, died within 24 hours after getting the vaccine. But the family absolutely, when I'm when I sort of just mentioned the possibility, maybe there's you know something going on here, because at that point I wasn't even aware then, you know, of the seriousness of of, of what might you know how it might end up. But absolutely not even absolutely nobody was 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 even considered this you know it was considered to be i was a crazy person just to suggest this so no way was anybody reporting that and and many other examples i you know i know where it should have been reported of course there was nobody prepared to report it and we so we know there's this massive underreporting and the, that wells data just gives us some extra insights into the extent of the underreporting 
I guess my my next question is, is why is June Rain using Professor David Spiegelhalter's data? And what are your what are your thoughts on using Professor Spiegelhalter's data? Very interesting question, because um, uh, David Spiegelhalter is completely dependent on the sort of government data, right? Whether it's from the Office of National Statistics or wherever. And we have shown that that data is massively flawed and systemically biased in many ways in relation to the COVID data. So for example, in his, she she described his, she called it an elegant risk benefit model. And it was based on the number of the uh, number of ICU admissions in each of the different age categories, okay? So he was showing, for example, that even in the very young age category, I haven't got the exact details now, the, the benefits of the vaccine outweighed the risk because he was showing, he was saying that there were proportionally more ICU admissions in that age group with, with COVID than there were with serious adverse reactions to the vaccine. So even in the youngest age group, you're saying, well, you've still got a risk benefit here, but it isn't much worse. You go to the older age groups and you've got a massive, so you've got a massive benefit over, over the risk. But that data on ICU admissions, for example, we have done some extensive analysis of this based on the um, on multiple freedom of information requests to different hospitals and hospital trusts. We know that the government's data, we know that's all, we know that's all wrong. We know it's massively overestimating the number of COVID admissions to, IC, to, to the ICU unit, units. So the basis for, his, for the, um, the benefit, which is supposedly where you've got to take account of people being admitted for COVID, is completely wrong. And on the other hand, the number of um, serious, the number of ICU admissions for adverse reactions to the vaccine is, of course, also massively underestimated. So, so he's got it wrong on both of those factors. And that's the, and yet that was the basis for, for this so-called elegant you know, risk model. Of course, he's quite, she's right in the sense that it is nice. It's a very ni- nice, it's nice to be able to show, if you're able to show the true number, to show the risks and benefits based on the accurate numbers. But when you're using garb- numbers that we know are completely garbage and are systemically biased in favour of vaccine both ways, then it doesn't make any sense. Communicating this kind of risk is going to be even more challenging. And here we enlisted the help of experts in the field. We knew from our yellow cards that was an age distribution. More common, the younger you got. And therefore, how could we convey benefit risk, the balance that matters, for different age groups, and also to take into account how prevalent the disease was, how likely you were to need to go to ITU with an infection. And so this was the rather elegant model that helped you to see that the younger you got, that risk-benefit balance was going to be much closer, much narrower. And when the disease actually receded, we were able to raise the age limit under which you would be offered an alternative vaccine. You've said it all there, haven't you, really? Um, garbage. And the fact, the fact is that we cannot trust the um, expert, in inverted commas, opinion of Professor David Spiegelhalter. I think that's that's clear to say. And, and one thing before I, and, and I know t- 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 David's going to finish off our interview. So just before I throw back to David, just to add one thing that, that you said there, in that I watched a lecture 
where Baroness Cumberledge, it was a GS1 presentation, and Baroness Cumberledge was on the stage alongside Lord Philip Hunt and Alison Cave. And Baroness Cumberledge said that from her Do No Harm report, that basically patients had been telling her that yellow cards effectively went into the bin. So, you know, and, and that's verbatim. She said that that's what happened. Now, she had said that she was shocked. She was absolutely shocked to the core that this was what she was hearing. But clearly, it would appear that even now, despite her do no harm report, which nobody really seems to be taking a lot of notice of, including uh, Henrietta Hughes, our patient safety commissioner, but it clearly would seem that nobody's interested in the yellow cards and that when you do report a yellow card, it could well be going into a dark void. But um, I just wanted to to throw that in, but I, I don't know if you've got a comment on that or whether David wants to come in on on, on either of those comments. Yeah, I'd like to just briefly come in on that because um, that's certainly the the uh, the kind of feedback that, that I've been hearing. And of course, the important point is, is that they've now stopped, the MHRA has stopped the regular uh, updating of the of the yellow card reports for, for the COVID vaccines. That that says it all. You know, they, they I think they didn't they say something like that. We now know that it's it's sort of got a very stable safety profile. And that there's just one other point about that safety profile, because that also came up in in her in her speech because she was praising the fact that they were using she was she was using the fact they were using the so-called method of um she is prr it's the proportional reporting ratio it's a method for determining safety signals right she was boasting about the fact that they were using this but she didn't give the results of that whereas of course we've exposed the fact that the cdc again only after a massive attempt massively long um uh, process of finally getting uh, the, the results from them from the Freedom of Information request. We know that they did the, this, this PRR analysis on the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and it, it was an absolute disaster. It's an absolute disaster. There were so many safety signals there that the, it, it should have obviously, the whole program should have obviously been stopped from the beginning. And yet here is she referring to the fact that they were using PRR, but not giving the results. Yes. Um, one of the strangest aspects of this um, has been the response from MHRA and, and others um, to to questions. Well, we've been asking questions and, and our questions are, tend to have come from a statistical basis. Um, a lot of it revolves around the yellow card system. Now, I, anytime I meet someone who's, who reports to me a vaccine injury, the first question I ask them is, did you report it via the yellow card system? I'm yet, I've yet to have someone actually turn around and say, oh, yes. Uh, it's, it's either no or, or I don't know. Maybe the doctor did not know. Right? So it's anecdotal. But I, I'm, I'm perceiving a, a major underreporting just from the people I'm interacting with. Um, when we get to the MHRA, their, their position baffles me because when pushed on, okay, thank you, MHRA, you're saying the vaccine's safe and effective, right? Let's consider the safety part of this. How do you know it's safe? And the first thing they'll say is, well, we've got the yellow card system. This is, this is wonderful science. We've got the yellow card system, and this, this would show if it was a problem. And then when you question them on the data in the yellow card system, 
they turned around and they started attacking their own data. And essentially they say, well, you know, so anyone can report to that. It's, it's, it's basically garbage. I mean, what can we know from that? So it, they, they hold these two opposite views in their heads at the same time they don't see the conflict. The, the number one weapon to ensure safety is the yellow card system. So one they mentioned first, whenever they're questioned on this, safety, oh, yellow card system, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. And when you actually push on the, on the yellow card data itself, they attack, they attack the system and attack the data. That, 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 I've got one other question I'd like to close on, but just on that one, are, are you seeing this this uh, strange, unreal nature of the response? I mean, it's a brilliant point. That's that's exact. That's exactly it. And that that so that comes through very strongly in that June rain speech. Because on on the one hand, as you say, that she's um, she's saying how successful the yellow card system is in in, in you know a, as a vehicle, as a tool for uh, ensuring safety, but actually clearly refuse is refusing to give any of the actual data in there because. Um, if it if it really was that you know that the effective and accurate system that she's making it out to be would then destroy the whole safety argument. So yeah, it's a, it's 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 really interesting. That's 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 exactly what we're seeing. I mean, she also I mean there was something else actually very very funny that she said in her uh, talk, which was about this. She mentioned about they'd also got the yellow card data on Paxlovid. And she said, I'm just trying to get the uh, the exact quote here because it's kind of like quite interesting because she said that um, there were, she said, oh, we can see it's very it's very safe. We've had very, very few reports. She said, when I last looked, it was only two out of a thousand reports in yellow card were for Paxlovid. And she said, well, it might have increased since then. Well, well, wait a minute. That's a bizarre statement because we're not interested in the proportion of all reports. We want to know how many reports and how many serious adverse reactions there have been to Paxlovid and to compare that other th with, with other things. But why, you know, again, why, why is that not itself? Why, is, why does she consider that to be such a safety signal when it, everybody else would think, well, no, there's something wrong here? Here again, I pay tribute to the work of the Yellow Card Centre, making sure that good data were always available to advise on drug-drug interactions so that good advice could be given to those contemplating using Paxlovid, which has been the most commonly used antiviral. And to date, we've had a very small number of suspected adverse reactions. When I looked, it was two out of a 1,000 reports on Paxlovid might have grown since then. So really important to see you can make medicine safer by anticipating these risks and uh, having appropriate advice to hand. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you brought that up because when I watched that video, and, and I thought it was very strange the way that she said Paxlovid, which I think we should remind our viewers and listeners is an antiviral made by Pfizer, and we've been warning of um, the dangers of, of Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, monoclonal antibodies for a very long time. And Paxlovid, what, what she said was one in two thousand. Uh, sorry, was it two in two that? two in 1,000, which it ended up is one in 500, which is a very, a very high serious adverse reaction that nobody seems to be talking about. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that you raised that. Have you got anything else to say on that Paxlovid statistic? Because I was horrified it, by it, to be it, honest. It, it, was, it was the ambiguity of it because she said only two out of a thousand of the reports. So actually I, I understood that to mean that for every thousand yellow card reports now, two were for Paxlovid. It wasn't that, that every that there were two in 
1,000 or 1 in 500 doses of Paxlovid, which were resulting in an adverse, serious adverse reaction. The point is we don't know that figure. She should be able to give us that figure, but didn't. She just diverted it by saying, you know, picking out what she thought was a low number out of, out of 1,000, which was a meaningless number, and suggesting somehow that meant it was very safe. It's just the whole thing, it smokes and mirrors all the way. And this speaks to a basic incompetence in June Rain, as you would say that, right? Because she's either trying to deceive people or she really is so statistically inept that she doesn't realise she's doing this. And, and kind of either one would call her fitness for a post into question. There we go. I'd like to finish with a, with a, with a, a final question for you. As we were looking at the statistics for the vaccine rollout, the UK called early on took, took the view that we have a problem here. And this was, this was based on a couple of things. One, the, the response through the yellow card system, which dwarfed anything that ever been. Like, that, was a, that was a signal point flashing red. But the other one was something more subtle. And we're seeing this, we've got this very strongly in some data from Scotland, that when they started to roll out the vaccine, they did it initially to the elderly, specifically in care homes, but then more broadly, and they did it in age group um, cohorts. And we were seeing a very strong signal in additional deaths about two to three weeks following this. And the, the they aligned in the same way that the age-by-age age cohort of the vaccine rollout was happening. So they'd vax the 80-year-olds 80, the 80 and up, and then three weeks later there was a spike in mortality in that age group. And then after a, a, you know, a week or two, they'd have, they'd, they'd, they'd have done all of those people, and they then were vaccinating the 65 to 80s. And then two to three weeks later there was a spike there. And it, it mapped really quite perfectly and it followed the vaccination programme. And so there's clearly some immediate reaction. We think this was to do with um, suppress, suppression of the immune system. There's clearly some immediate adverse reaction that's happening and, and death is spiking and it's following the vaccination rollout. So we have a problem. Now, there's been other, lots of other information has come forward since then to show other correlations between the vaccine rollout and, and, and injury and death. Um, in terms of the data which you've seen, which you, you um, in terms of the data which you've seen, what would you sing, single out as the, as the most important data point, the most important data set that says we really have a problem here, we really need to be thinking carefully about this, and the government's position based on this data is simply not tenable? Is there is there one correlation or one data? set that really stands out for you as as as, as the one that 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 carries this message most clearly well there've been some new ones where you look at you know the most vaccinated areas of different countries or most vaccinated uh, countries have the highest excess deaths but i'm very pleased you raised that thing about the, the, the those spikes in mortality in excess deaths occurring uh, with the the rollout peaks for different age groups because that we were using the ONS mortality data by vaccination status right from the beginning. That's when we first, we were the first to raise that, that issue. We published very, very early on this and we've been on on it. We've been on it on all subsequent reports, right? So we, we, we point out exactly what you said, that there were these, these, these spikes in all-cause mortality 
coinciding exactly in each age group with the role with the rollout of that age group so that so that something was clearly going on and of course we said when you look at the ons data this is this is where the whole scandalous manipulation and corruption of the data comes in right the uh the ons was saying well actually those peaks that you're seeing are in the unvaccinated not the vaccinated right they're suddenly dying from non-covid at an exceptionally high rate and they're there and of course we said no that's evidence as we know that you're misclassifying those people who are dying shortly after the vaccination as unvaccinated right because why would they suddenly why would the why would somebody who's unvaccinated why would the people who are unvaccinated suddenly die start dying of non-covid um uh, deaths at the time when they're vaccinated again vaccinated against covid and similarly why would the why would the people who have been vaccinated with who have been vaccinated start stop dying of non-covid deaths because that was also observed. that's why you knew that the the ons classic the ons data was uh, all, all systematically flawed with this misclassification and what did they come back with they came back with this this ridiculous nonsense about the healthy vaccine effect they were saying ah well, what's happening what's explaining this is that those peaks that you're seeing in excess mortality in the unvaccinated is because when the vaccine rollout is happening the people who are close to death are being refused the vaccine they're not given the vaccine which is absolute nonsense because actually people with multiple comorbidities and people actually who were who are known to be close to death were actually prioritized for the vaccine so it's rubbish but that's so we maintain that that the the that data set where you look at those um the the uh the timeline of the excess those peaks and the rollout is a very, was a, always a very powerful indicator but so that is that is one big uh important data set and the other i think are the new the various data sets that we're seeing from around and say from around the world where you've got these very very strong uh correlations between the vaccination rates and the excess death rates yeah this is a good point this reminds me of the, the recent article um on uh looking at the number of people who identified as transgender in the most recent census uh, it actually correlated with the uh, number of people who didn't have English as a first language. And the more people you had who didn't speak English as a first language, the more people you had answering this census question to identify themselves as transgender. And uh, what's happening there is they didn't understand the question. It was a bizarre question. They didn't know what it was, and they, and they, they ticked the wrong box. Seems to be the logical answer. And looking at the data carefully, in this case, and certainly in the case of everything surrounding COVID and the vaccination program, uh, is vital. Uh, can I ask Debbie, would you like to say a final few words before we close? Do you know what? I'm just so grateful that we've got people like Professor Fenton to be able to tell us the truth. Because, and, and I get what Professor Fenton says that, you know, you're close to retirement and it's more difficult for younger um, doctors and experts in it to be able to talk to speak out but I think my, my big message is that it's even more important I think to remember that you have a lot to lose Professor Fenton um, you've you're very established you're a world expert and you're bravely standing out up and speaking out and thank goodness that you are and for me you are who makes 
an expert in people, you, you know, you have a lot to lose. You're not making anything from speaking out and speaking the truth. And I think there's much more data that we need to analyze, including in that lecture, some data that June Rain put out with, with regards to results on pregnant women and the injection. So I think there's far more to talk about. And I know that you yourself are talking up about the whole net zero, you know, going away from uh, pharmacology and, and vaccines, but you're talking about net zero. So I think there's an awful lot more to talk about. And I just like to thank you so much. And and from my perspective, also, just to give you the last word, um, because I, I always do, um, is what would you be saying to the public that are listening today? Um, my thanks, my, my huge thanks to David for his contribution and, and to you as well. And, and David might well want to come back after this. But what is your message to the public and to our audience that are watching this? What is their big takeaway from this, do you think? Don't believe the, uh, the data that's provided by the governments and try and find out from those who are kind of like dissenting against the official COVID narrative. Go and find those people and see what they're saying, because that's where you'll find the accurate analysis of the data.